Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is Fang dead? Has Fang died? I don't mean to be glib. I just wanted to get in front of tomorrow's storyline because after the Fang stocks decline today, you better believe the obituary is being written once again right now. This time with a death notice containing two A's and two N's, as in Fang or Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Nvidia, and Google, the company now known as Alphabet. Any weakness in Fang is worth taking seriously, of course, especially on a down day like this one where the Dow dipped 37 points, S&P declined 0.32%, the Nasdaq lost 0.44%. So let me explain why we get these periodic pullbacks, so uh, that way uh, you can try to figure out whether it's worth tearing your hair out some more, maybe sell, stop. First, let's take it from the top down, or what's known as the macro, for those who want to sound really smart. Today, higher, we got higher interest rates, all right? That's right, bonds sold off. That gives you higher rates, which I think is a consequence of the economy doing better, not to mention a tax bill that could really make things heat up. When you consider the big hole this thing puts in the deficit, you know the government's going to have to borrow a lot of money, meaning there'll be a huge influx of supply in the bond market. Makes sense, right? The government has got to pay its bills, doesn't it? And when Uncle Sam issues lots of bonds, that pushes the price down, which by definition drives interest rates up. Normally, I'd be concerned about that, but the worry du jour is what's known as a flat yield curve, where short rates set by the Fed and long-term rates set by the market are roughly the same. It's often an arbinger, another fancy word like macro that makes me sound real smart, an arbinger of recession. But with the government borrowing this much money, long rates are going higher, so no need to fear an inverted yield curve if you ask me. Why do I find this incredibly reassuring? Because I've been saying this over and over. I want banks to lend more. Lending has been punk. But if long-term rates go higher, making loans will suddenly get a lot more profitable, giving banks a real incentive to lend. But there are consequences here. When we see rates go higher, we immediately think inflation. Normally, the two go hand in hand. And when we get inflation, the value of any future earnings stream diminishes. That's what inflation is, the gradual erosion of purchasing power. Given that the FANG stocks represent big bets on the future of earnings high, uh, of uh, high growth companies, the future earnings stream, inflation's real bad for them, so their stocks sell off when rates go up. Now, let me simplify it. Higher rates often lead to lower prices for the most juice stocks out there, and FANG be the king of the juice. 
Worse, when the economy is humming, investors lose interest in what's known as secular growth stories like these. Facebook may have terrific growth, but in this environment, the industrials can give you much larger year-over-year gains because their numbers are accelerating so rapidly. Remember, stocks go higher when they beat the earnings estimates. The bigger the beat, the better. And with the economy roaring, the industrials should, versus the secular growth stocks, blow away the numbers particularly now that we're getting a boost from the tax cut. Fang's numbers will likely be just as good as they always are, none better, none worse. But with the industrials catching fire, Fang's numbers should be less impressive than the beats I am expecting from the smokestack companies. It took me about 100 pages to, to explain exactly what I just explained to you. I was uh, more trenchant here. Remember, I'm not saying you should sell Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, NVIDIA, and Alphabet. Unlike everybody else that you hear tomorrow morning, believe me, they're going to do it. I'm just giving you the bear case so you know what you're up against on a day like today so you don't panic. That way, you know what? When the stocks get slammed, maybe you'll even buy some. Now let's deal with the components. I'll give you the earth sign brief for each one. First, I'm hearing that Facebook will simply do the number and not much more than that because there's no acceleration or new product that's taking the world by storm. It's become same old, same old, same old, same old. Great, I should add. And that's not enough for the market. I'm not kidding. That's really the rap against Facebook, other than the fact that Twitter might be doing better. That's not a lot of worry, but it's enough. Amazon. Okay, today Walmart caught an upgrade that talked about how the company has figured out the Omnichannel. If that's the case, you could argue that they're in a much better position to go toe-to-toe with the online colossus. Plus, Amazon hasn't destroyed anyone lately. The Death, yeah, lately. The death Star doesn't, is not inflicting a lot of pain. Even Best Buy is doing well, for heaven's sake. I think Amazon is fabulous, especially its red-hot web services business. I say if we get a real weakness, I'll pound the table. But that said, you know what's driving the stock down. Apple, it just caught a downgrade that said that the iPhone supercycle is getting long in the tooth. The service revenue stream isn't big enough to offset the waning phone biz. I don't know. I mean, how many times have we heard this? My reaction? Look, you may be tempted to sell it here and try to buy it back at lower levels. I don't know how good. I don't know if I would get that right. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that's a fool's earn. I say own Apple, don't trade it. Every trading call to get out of Apple has been wrong. This piece did not change my mind. Even when the piece said at one point, this is, you know, it's just, it's happened over and over again. I remember it says that the, when the Apple 5 ended, there was a big sell-off. Well, how did you do if you sold after the Apple 5? People just aren't good enough to get back in. Netflix, all right, this decline's all about Disney. It's putting together a rival to Netflix, and enough people take the threat seriously that sellers have materialized pretty much everywhere. All right, this is a tough one, I have to admit. Now, I always think, though, uh, what would it take to duplicate Netflix's business? I think certainly it would cost more than the company's current $80 billion valuation. That said, I will concede that it is definitely the most vulnerable of the fangs. What's the matter with NVIDIA, my dog? The same problem as always. It's one of the most expensive stocks in the world. So why own it? Because NVIDIA is the dominant chip company when it comes to servers, gaming, autonomous cars, and artificial intelligence. Will its mantle be challenged? Oh, it's all the time. Not by Micron tonight, but Micron had a good number. Does that mean you should sell the stock? Look, NVIDIA, the stock, has periodic swoons. And this one has lasted a long time, ever since the company reported. I believe it's digesting a big move. And this stock, like the other fangs, is simply the victim of a rotation. I'm not panicking and NVIDIA. I don't think you should either. Finally, what about Alphabet, the company formerly known as Google? I think it's gained market share and it's about $100 billion in cash fallback on. That's a nice cushion. 
Also, it's a swell web service business. It's doing fantastically. Not as good as Amazon, but still good. An autonomous car business called Waymo, second to none. Needless to say, I would not be a seller. My charitable trust owns this one, as well as the stocks of Apple, NVIDIA, and Facebook. We believe in high growth in the, the ActionOwnersPlus.com club. So could this be the end of FANG? Look, people have pronounced these stocks dead so many times. It's just an endless headline. So you got to wonder how they've managed to survive at all, let alone thrive. But I'll tell you that in all my years in the business, we've seen super growth stocks go in and out of favor. However, there is nothing wrong with the underlying companies. So you just have to wait until their stocks come down and you're given still one more chance to buy them. That could be happening now. Now, look, I understand owning FANG can be painful. But if you look back, say, at Apple stock, for example, how many times would you have bought high and sold low over the years if you let this stuff freak you out? Here's the bottom line. Don't let some analyst downgrade or some rotation out of high growth scare you away from owning some FANG just because the media reports on it only, it seems, on the obituary pages. You know, one time I actually wrote obituaries for a living, but I never wrote a premature one. So until I see a coroner's report from real competitors of Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, NVIDIA, and Alphabet, I think we need to presume that these stories remain very much alive. Can we go to Paul in Florida, please, Paul? Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. And a big booyah from Pensacola, Florida. Man, it's Scambia Bay. Let's go fishing. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Hey, What's I really enjoy your show. And Thank thanks you. for all the great information you provide for the little guy. Thank my you. My stock is GameStop, symbol GME. Their <laughs> PE is currently less than six, and they have increased their dividends in each of the last four years. But the stock seems to remain in a steady decline. What's your opinion, Well, Jim? I mean, like, it's a digital business now. Uh, and I've got to tell you, even the digital business is under a lot of pressure. The stocks are under pressure. The business isn't. But, you know, the physical uh, gaming stuff, it just, it's, I keep hoping that the stock will get to some level that it's cheap enough to recommend, but I have not found that level yet. But thank you for the kind comments. And I try to help everybody, which includes the little guy. But we're all kind of little when you think about it, not to be too existential. Thomas in Alabama. Thomas. Thanks for taking my call, Jim. I'm a first-time caller, but I routinely listen to your program. Thank you. I've made several investments over the years, and one in particular back in January, I bought some General Electric based on your recommendation. It was selling for thirty-two seventy-five a share. It kind of gradually went down and came up, and then about six months ago, I think it was on the show, a caller called in, and you recommended holding on to it because it was going to boom back up. Well, since then, it's gone down. It's currently, I think, at seventeen fifty-nine a share. Do you recommend holding that? You know, GE is a good company. They've got different projects right. going on all over aviation. True, but Thomas, sometimes you just get had, and I got had. I was wrong about GE. That's my fault. I shouldn't have recommended the way down. I thought business was doing better. Why did I think that? Because management told me that. Did management know something I didn't know? I don't think so. I think they got snookered too. But you know what? We got a new guy in town, Flannery. I think he's trying to put it together, trying to get it together so I would not sell it. But I cost people money because I believed. And I'm ashamed. I don't think there's more to say than that. Fag's not dead. 
Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, NVIDIA, and Google are very much aligned. Well, made money tonight. Some of my best ideas come from you, America. Tonight, I'm eyeing the latest company you've clued me into, and it's up nearly 50% year-to-date. I'll reveal the name just ahead. Then, has Bitcoin started to replace gold as a place to store value? I'm going off the charts to find out. And a company that's bringing the bond market into the digital age. I'll reveal the name. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I'm always telling you that we here at Mad Money strive to be the most interactive show on television. Why do we do that? Well, some of it's because I'm a nice guy who wants to be responsive to your concerns. Uh, But there's another component, too. It's a form of crowdsourcing. Every now and then, our callers will unearth fabulous stocks that turn into some of our best ideas. Most of our viewers, I find, have great horse sense. Which brings me to Penumbra, P-E-N. This is a medical device company that I initially got clued into because of a call from Collins in South Carolina 13 months ago. Then I got another call from uh, Sari in New Jersey back in February. Both times I decided to circle back and do more homework before offering my opinion. My verdict? I gave you my blessing to buy Penumbra for speculation, but also recommend that you wait for a better entry point before buying it hand over fist. And I know when I do that, it upsets people because they say, why don't you just come out and just say buy it? Well, there's one problem here, and you're right. Penumbra hasn't given you many entry points. The stock was at $65 when I covered it in November of last year. It was at $82 when I circled back in March. And it surged all the way to $116 last month where it peaked. Within the last six weeks, though, Penumbra has finally given you that long-awaited pullback. The shares are now down 20% from the November highs, and people are getting nervous. So given that it's an audience name that's made some of our viewers a lot of moolah, I think we've got to figure out whether we're dealing with a viable dip or, or if this is just the beginning of a larger, more painful decline. The house of pain. It's not always easy to tell. First of all, let me give you some background here. Penumbra is a company that's focused on making devices that help treat patients with neurovascular conditions. There, I want you to think aneurysms and stroke victims. You know, this is breakthrough stuff. Their products allow doctors to perform minimally invasive procedures to remove blood clots that might be blocking circulation in a patient's brain. This is a big deal. And it's not just the brain. Penumbra's devices can remove clots and restore blood flow in your peripheral vascular system, too, meaning all the veins and arteries in your extremities. It's amazing. Now, the first time I was asking about Penumbra a little over a year ago, business was booming and the stock had already experienced an epic run. I wanted to wait for weakness, but you only caught, it in a, mo- you only caught a modest downturn before the stock started roaring again. Second time when we circled back, I mentioned March of 82, when it was at 82, I said, go ahead and speculate on it. But again, I put that darn caveat, wait for a pullback. And again, the darn thing just took off like a rocket. That is until the big sell-off from 116 down to 93 over the past few weeks. 
So what the heck's going on here? Okay, one of the reasons I like Penumbra and probably why I kept getting calls about it was that the company kept gave you a fabulous winning streak of much better than expected quarters. Reminds me of that Mazor stock uh, that's out of Israel. Um, this You got a beat after a beat after a beat after a beat with Penumbra. And that's how you get such a relentless rally. Remember what I said at the top of the show, that it's beating estimates that matter? Not long after I recommended it earlier this year, the streak was broken, though. When Penumbra reported May, it delivered a larger-than-expected earnings loss. When it reported again in early August, we got another wider-than-expected loss. Now, at first, this didn't seem to phase the analyst community or the shareholders. After all, Penumbra wasn't really an earnings story. It's a small but rapidly expanding medical device company that's all about revenue growth. In fact, after the first miss back in May, one analyst came out and said, don't trade Penumbra, just own it. <laughs> I think he confused it with Apple. Like I said, though, the real metric here is revenue. And the company continued to beat those numbers. That's the top line. Sure, the revenue growth has slowed down from last year, down from around 40% to the mid-20s. But that's just the law of large numbers at work. So the stock continued to skyrocket. Penumbra did a 1.3 million share secondary offering in mid-March. It didn't matter. Stock rallied 6.3% the next day. That's a very good sign. Now, the company had to recall their 3D stent retriever platform in June. But it was a small recall, and hardly anyone seemed to notice. Management presented at a healthcare conference in September. They told a good story. Presentation was well received. Stock continued to rally. And that was the setup going into Penumbra's third quarter earnings report six weeks ago. Once again, they gave you a nice top-line beat with revenue growth accelerating to 24.9%. On top of that, the company earned a penny better per share when Wall Street was looking for a six-cent loss. They earned a penny. They didn't lose. And even better, management raised their full-year sales forecast. Sure enough, the stock spiked in response, as you would expect. It surged from 103 to 113. That makes sense. It was a single session. And then going to 115 and change the day after that, this thing was hot as a pistol. But that's where Penumbra peaked. Suddenly, the stock hit a wall, completely reversed, taking it back down to 94 and change as of today. And you know what the worst part is? Sometimes you got to own this. I can't really tell you why it went down. To my admittedly unrefined eye, all of the news seems to have been good news. That's obviously not how the market saw things. First big slide came on November 10th. It was an 8.3% decline right after the big post-earnings rally. Let's call that profit-taking, right? Nothing wrong with wanting to ring the register on a big winner. I always tell you that no one ever got hurt taking a profit. The very next day, though, the New England Journal of Medicine, incredibly influential publication, published the results from a clinical trial conducted by Stryker. That's one of Penumbra's competitors. The takeaway? Okay, the general consensus in the medical community has been that when someone has a stroke, you need to remove the blood clot within the first six hours after that the damage has already been done. But Stryker's study showed that stroke victims could still benefit from having their blood clots removed up to 24 hours after the stroke. In short, there should be more demand for machines made by Stryker as well as by Penumbra. It, it's not just good news for Stryker. It's good news for, uh, for anyone who's in the business of removing dangerous blood clots from people's brains. But while Penumbra's stock initially rallied in response to that article, within days it had given up all those gains and just kept on sliding. The final leg lower came last week when analysts said BMO, BMO, downgraded Penumbra from outperform to market perform. That's Wall Street speak for uh, taking it from a buy to a hold. I think that tells you all you need to know. Why do I say that? Because the same team at BMO drastically raised their price target for the stock after the company reported its fabulous results last month. 
when the stock was 10 points higher than where they downgraded. Wait a second. Rationale for the downgrade, valuation. All right, fair enough. It's not exactly cheap. But if the valuation is so stretched, why do these guys like it at higher levels? Simple. They liked it when it seemed to be going up, and I think they stopped liking it when it seemed to be going down. Look, Penumbra is a textbook example of what happens when growth investors decide to declare victory and move on to greener pastures. Some of the recent sell-off makes sense, okay? Penumbra won't really benefit from the big tax cut. As I said, it's a lot of stocks that I mentioned at the beginning of the show aren't going to benefit that are high growth like this. But I think most of it's because the stock started declining. Then a lot of weak-handed investors panicked, and that sent the whole, they were selling their whole positions, dumping. And not unlike the mini sell-off I described at the top of the show, you just cut everything, everything getting hammered. The bottom line, I've been telling you to watch out for a pullback in Penumbra since last year. Well, am I going to run from it now that we got one? I mean, Penumbra? I think it's a broken stock, not a broken company. And the axe in this name, a fellow by the name of Larry Beagleson of Wells Fargo, remains pretty darn bullish. And you know what? So am I. The recent weakness in Penumbra, I think, is a gift. And for those who like these high-growth super stocks, I'd take it. Much more Mad Money Ed tonight with Bitcoin bursting on the scene. Does an investment in gold or cryptocurrency make more sense in this market? A lot of people ask me about this, so I'm going to tackle it with a technician. Then I'm sitting down with the man behind the revolution in the bond market. It's making a fortune for shareholders. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO of Market Access. And why breakouts could be the new normal in this market. So stick with Kramer. You ask, I deliver. Has Bitcoin started to replace gold as a repository of value? A place for rich people to hide their money when they get worried about inflation or government confiscation. With the recent decline in the precious metal and the incredible parabola that is the run in Bitcoin, this idea keeps popping up. Does it have any merit? Will these newfangled instruments really replace gold as the favorite alternative to actual currency? It's an important question, which is why tonight... We're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. She writes with me at Real Money. We need an answer for this. Long story short, Bitcoin's not going to replace gold anytime soon. And I'd say that even if it hadn't started pulling back over the past couple of days. As Garner explains, Bitcoin was created as an experimental currency that would let users move money around the web anonymously. It was never intended to be an investment vehicle, even if that's what it's become. What's more, Bitcoin's not backed by anything tangible. If, heaven forbid, some global calamity strikes and the power goes out, you may not even be able to access the digital currency. You don't even need to take it that far. We're constantly hearing stories about people losing their cryptocurrency investments to hackers or simply because they forgot their password. Put it all together and Garner believes Bitcoin's astronomical value is the result of perception, not reality. Of course, you could say that about a lot of financial instruments. And you know how I feel about Bitcoin. If you understand the risks, be my guest, buy it. But let's compare this to gold. Now, you might argue that gold only has value because of perception, too. But even if you take away gold's symbolic value, the precious metal is still good for something. It can make shiny jewelry. It's a great conductor, which is why it's used in electronics. And it doesn't corrode, hence its popularity with dentists. And, of course, people have been using it as a medium of exchange for thousands of years. More important, Garner points out that the gold market is extremely deep. You've got millions of investors owning everything from bullion to coins to jewelry, and they all hold a small piece of the pie. 
All told, the worldwide gold market is said to total about $2.4 trillion. With a T, the total market for cryptocurrencies is around $600 billion. And even with Bitcoin's remarkable run, it makes up more than half of that. Worse, there's a widespread belief that huge swaths of the Bitcoin market are dominated by maybe a thousand players. Something could really skew, skew the action here. So the idea that gold's recent weakness stems from Bitcoin's strength garners skeptical. So what's really going on then? According to Garner, when gold pulled back below 1250 an ounce earlier this month, it was no different than the multiple other pullbacks we've seen this year. In fact, that was the fourth time gold dropped below $1,250 in 2017. It's already bounced back above that level. Nobody blamed it on Bitcoin the last three times. More than that, Garner thinks the precious metal could be poised to go higher here. Check out this historical chart of gold that averages the action over the past 15 years. Look, uh, we typically get hit with a December a decline in early December. Well, there you go, okay? Which then gets met by buying, leading to a nice run that tends to, lead to uh, last until March. If that seasonal pattern holds up, Garner says you should be buying the dips in gold, not freaking out about its relationship to cryptocurrencies. Now, take a look at this weekly chart of gold, which shows the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's commitment of traders or Cot report. Garner loves this data because it tells you what huge speculators, meaning money managers, small speculators, and commercial hedgers are doing with their gold futures. The pattern here? Garner's noticed that when the net long position of large gold speculators falls to around 100,000 contracts, the precious metal has a tendency to find a bottom. At the moment, it's almost at 100,000, which means we could have a, li- we have a little more downside, or maybe gold already bottomed at its last week. See, take a look at that. It's pretty... Uh, dispositive when you think about it, right? Okay. Or consider the weekly chart of the dollar index, which measures the U.S. dollar against a basket of currencies. Gold's denominating greenbacks, so when the dollar goes down, it goes up. And while this correlation has been weaker in 2017, the fact is the dollar's on the decline. Garner thinks the dollar index is headed to uh, uh, to 90. The last time it was here, gold was trading at 1350, up nearly $90 from where it's currently traded. I think this is incredibly important because I, too, believe the dollar is going to go down. A lot of people feel this is a, uh, a move that's going to go here. I think it's going to challenge there. I think she's right about this. All right, now let's go to the weekly chart of gold futures itself. Remember, we had about a decade-long period where the precious metal could do no wrong. Then in 2013, it collapsed, and ever since then, it struggled to make a comeback. So for the last four-odd years, gold has been stuck in this trading range, caught between 1,000 and 1,400. However, within the range, we've seen some emotional peaks and troughs, and there's a pattern to them. Garner's noticed that whenever the gold bulls are loudest, the gold market tends to get hit with selling. When the bears seem ascendant, buyers step in and we get a rebound. So the more we hear about that Bitcoin is bearish for gold, the more people say that the shiny stuff is uh, is being replaced as a repository for the world's wealth. The more confident Garner feels that the precious metal could have found some up uh, is about to find some upside from these levels. On top of that, take a look at the slow stochastic indicator down at the bottom here. This is a tool that helps measure when an asset has gotten too overbought or too oversold. And it's stunning just how accurate this thing is, okay? Uh, it, it, of the last 10 occasions when this oscillator has shown oversold readings, meaning gold's due for a bounce, nine of them have ended up giving you a rally. Look at this. I mean, this is really kind of amazing. Nine. Nine of ten. That said, the one time it didn't work back was back in early 2013. Ended up being an utter disaster for anyone who bought the dip. So, you know, you still got to be careful. You can't be blind to this. Right now, though, gold is once again in oversold territory, and I like the odds. See, look at this. It's right where it should bounce. 
Not bad, huh? I like that. What else? Garner notes that the precious metal has two floors of support. There's one at 1,235, and there's one at 1,200. She expects that those levels will hold if, if we get another downswing. More important, she sees gold running up to 1,350 before it hits the ceiling of resistance. And if we get any kind of positive fundamental news, then it's 1,420s in the cards. It's even possible she thinks we can go to 1,485 in the event of some major unforeseen news that freaks people out. But Garner doesn't think that's all that likely. In the end, gold has experienced multiple slumps in recent years, and every time it's managed to bounce back, Garner thinks the Bitcoin-related worries will play out the same way, although we might revisit the 1,200 level before the rally kicks in. Of course, as always with the charts, there are caveats. If Garner's wrong and gold breaks down below 1,200, then the bears might take, all the, take it all the way down to 1,100. It could even go as low as 985. However, she thinks the odds of that happening are pretty darn slim. Bottom line, look, I know the jaw-dropping run in Bitcoin has been very exciting, even after the cryptocurrency substantial decline over the past couple of days. But gold is not being supplanted by Bitcoin as the go-to alternative to actual currency. And the charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest that gold might be ready to make a comeback. And while I won't discourage anyone from buying Bitcoin, just know the risks, know your limitations. I'm with Carly when it comes to the precious metal, not the precious keystroke. I want to go to George in New Mexico. George. Hey, Jim. Yo, yo. How you doing, bud? I got two questions. Fun sure. questions, kind of. They're both regarding a possible war with North Korea. Question number one, if I had $10,000 worth of GLD, how much could I expect that to appreciate in the event of a war? Question number two is what's going to happen to the cryptocurrencies? Do you think people are going to run in or run out? These are hard. Uh, these are hard questions. Um, I would expect gold to jump maybe as much as 10 percent. I think the cryptocurrency will actually there'll be people all over the world in areas that are, uh, let's say, uh, concerned uh, about governments toppling. I think they'll buy they'll buy the Bitcoin. Uh, so it'll probably drive both of them up, which would be unusual. But there's a mu- enough money to go around. Let's go to Blake in Connecticut. Blake. Hey, Jim, thanks for taking the call. Big of course. Booyah. Booyah. Roger Williams, uh, University alum over here. Appreciate hey, there you go. The Fantastic. What's up? Hey, I had a quick question. Uh, we're trying to get in on this crypto wave. Missed some of the big gains on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, I'm thinking look at Ripple. Uh, I'm thinking maybe potential to make 10 times the money, a fourth in market cap with some ties to Amex and BMO. Uh, my concerns are the security. Is it secure to, to purchase other coins and exchange them for Ripple? I, I would feel better about is, Bitcoin. I, and, and I, I, I would feel better about Bitcoin. But, you know, also, I'm not an expert on this. So I like to know I like to admit when I'm not an expert. Um, and, and it's just better that way. Uh, I am a stock guy. I know my own limitations. I'm kind of like uh, Clint and Magnum Force, you know, where they had that police force within a police force. Not like Brazil in the 30s. Right. Is it all that glitters gold? I don't think so. Despite its exciting run, Bitcoin has not replaced the precious metal, which is ready to roar itself. Much more made money, including my exclusive with the company up nearly 500% over the past five years. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO of Market Access to see if the move can continue. Then, when you wake up with a breakout, you might be disappointed. But when it comes to this market, it might be a good thing. I'll explain. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
Even an old idea can be revolutionary when applied to a new context. Hey, somebody should put that on a fortune cookie. I like that. Let me give you an example. In the stock market, electronic trading platforms, they've been around for decades, right? There's no longer anything special about the idea of logging in to, say, E-Trade to buy and sell stocks. However, you might not realize that the bond market is a totally different animal. Every time a company or a government issues bonds, they're creating a whole new security, which means you have lots of different products, but each one has far fewer holders than a big liquid stock. Now, that can make liquidity hard to come by for the bonds. And without liquidity, it's hard to trade electronically, which brings me to market access. And the symbol here is MKTX. It's an electronic trading platform that's trying to make the bond market more liquid, thus making the whole experience simple for traders. And I got to tell you, I think making more money for the client. Market access provides institutional fixed income investors with a marketplace that's not controlled by the big Wall Street firms. If, if what I just said puts you to sleep, Oh, give me a break. Get this. Stock's up 37% year-to-date, on top of a 32% gain last year. And the most recent quarter is very strong. From, if you bought this thing when it came public, you made a fortune. So let's take a closer look with Rick McFay. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Market Access. Get a better sense of how his company's transforming the bond market and where it might be headed. Mr. McFay, welcome to Man Money. Good to see you. Thank you, Jim. Right, uh, you. Rick, you're one of these guys that everyone tells me, when are you going to have more money get them? So I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, now, a lot of our viewers are not bond traders. So perhaps what you can do first is introduce our audience to what, uh, what you guys do and why it's so important, because it really is revolutionary from when I was in the business. Yeah, great. Thank you. Well, we are a fintech company. Uh, and we build technology solutions for the institutional bond markets. Okay. And we run an electronic marketplace that's adding efficiency and uh, reducing transaction costs for the global bond markets. Now, but how does that necessarily provide the other side of the trade, so to speak, if I have a security that is not trading that much? Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fact in the bond markets that turnover is a lot lower than what you're used to right. in the equity markets. Uh, but we've done that by creating the broadest liquidity pool available in the global bond markets with a network that now includes 150 dealers and over 1,100 institutional investor firms that can all trade with each other on the market access network. Okay, so people are going to say uh, the stock's done very well, but how do you guys make your money if you're just a kind of a go-between? Well, we make our money through transaction fees for the trades that take place on our system. Uh, so it's really a volume-based game. So as, as more and more share of the market starts to move electronic, our volumes go up, we earn transaction fees. That drives our revenue growth. Okay, so one of the things that I think that uh, this sounds like to me is you're basically digitizing the bomb market instead of just guys making phone calls looking for buyers and sellers. It's as simple as that, Jim. We, uh, we've created a marketplace that makes it much easier to trade bonds. Uh, we promote price transparency, greater competition, better bond choice, so there's more trading mm -hmm. opportunities on the network, and all the while driving down transaction costs. Okay, so how about if I have bonds from an emerging market? Do you do those too? We absolutely do. We've really focused on the hardest markets to uh, move electronic. Okay. Uh, so when we started the company 18 years ago, uh, government bonds had already started to move electronic. Right. They're the most liquid market in the world. We focused on the less liquid sectors. So our primary markets are investment-grade corporate bonds, high-yield, and emerging market debt. Could you ever, because it's put on everybody's mind, could you ever, if you decided tomorrow, to make a Bitcoin exchange? Well, it's not really uh, in, in our wheelhouse. It's not wheelhouse. a bomb market, right. Uh, so I think it's better suited for the exchanges that trade uh, uh, foreign exchange and other, other more liquid markets. Okay, so give me the... 
What do you think is the health of the market right now? And, you know, today interest rates went up. Yes. But I think, uh, is, it, is, is, it a, is it a bubble? There's yes. such low yields that yes. I would never tell people to buy bonds. Yes, I think uh, 2018 is going to be a really interesting year for the bond okay. markets. And quite frankly, we've been growing in spite of the fact that we've been living in this very low yield, right. low volatility environment. Uh, and as you know, we've been through unprecedented monetary easing and quantitative easing right. with massive amounts of balance sheet expansion by the Fed, the ECB mm -hmm. and the Bank of Japan, driving rates down to help spur economic growth. But the, the short answer is that has worked and we're now seeing better global growth numbers right. than we've seen since the crisis. Central banks are starting to reverse those policies. Mm -hmm. Rates are starting to rise and we have a lot of debt out there. Right. Uh, corporate bond debt is about double what it was eight years ago because of the issuance environment for corporate treasurers. Uh, right. So I think it's going to be a very interesting year as rates start to rise and, and normalize over the coming coming quarters. Right. Well, one last question. I know we always hear from the big brokerage houses that fixed income's not doing that well because there's not a lot of volatility. When I look at your numbers, you're doing quite well. What are they doing wrong that you're doing? Well, you know, our, ours is not a volatility or trading business. It's really about how can we move market share that has been trading by telephone to a more efficient global electronic marketplace. Mm -hmm. And each year there's more share heading in that direction. The exciting part is that in our largest market of high-grade corporate bonds, mm -hmm. the estimates are that only about 20% of that market is electronic today. And when you look at emerging market debt and high-yield debt, it's only 8 or 9%. Oh, yeah, plenty of room. So we think there's much more to come. Well, it's a great story, really is. And for those who I mean, used to trade bonds, I had to get guys on the phone to get six different offers. And you know what it was like? It's terrible. <laughs> You're solving that problem. Okay, that's Rick McFace, founder, chairman, CEO of Market Access, MKTX. They are providing a real service for people who trade bonds. They have money's back into the break. It is time. It's over the late round. The round And then the late round is over. Are you ready, Ski Dad? It's time for the lightning round. Players, everyone, I want to start with Connor in Texas. Connor. Hey, Jim, thanks for taking my call. You betcha. Oh, I'm calling about Intuitive Surgical, ISRG. Well, the stock's been a little droopy of late, but that's okay because this stock has so often done this, and this pullback ah, is viable. I need to go to Bob in New York. Bob. Yes, a big booyah, Jim. I just want to ask you about Allegan going forward. What do you think? Well, Allegan has been crushing me. It drives me crazy. It has me beating my head. I'm, like, taking the whip. And I've been whipping my self-flagellation on this one. But you know what? I'm sticking with it. I think Brent Saunders has a real company. My Chapel Trust owns it. I tell club members of AxelersPlus.com. I know I've been wrong, but I'm sticking with it. Let's go to Randy in Florida. Randy. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah. Randy here from Weston, Florida. Fly, oh. Eagles, fly, baby. You bet, hope man. the Eagles are all the way, baby, I hope. Let's just hope. <laughs> Got a question for you. Want to know what to do with a little bit of some CVS stuff? I think Buy, CVS sell. is at the bottom end of the range, and I like it right here. I know it's out of fashion. Seems to go down every time it lifts its head. Someone pounds it. I'm sticking with it down here. I didn't like it hard. Let's go to Josh in Washington, D.C. Josh. Hey, Josh. This is Jim from Washington, D.C. in the University of Maryland. Booyah. Yes, indeed. What's up? I'm calling about Paycom Software. I bought them at 70, up 20% since then. 82% year-to-date, constantly crushes earnings by at least 10%. 
I'm wondering where you think you can go. I know this growth can't last forever. Man, this stock sells at 65 times earnings. It's up 81%. Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered. I want you to take out your cost basis and let the rest run. I'm going to Bob in New York. Bob. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well, Bob. Thank you for asking. How about you? Okay, I'm doing well up here in uh, getting cold in New York, uh, upstate New York. Uh, I'm wondering about Huntsman. I like it's commodity chemical. They're working. So is Lionel Basil. They are working, and I got to stick with it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Traders are creatures of habit. They respect ranges. They know when stocks are stuck in a range and they can't go any higher. Or at least until this particular market, that's what they thought they knew. Now, no two markets are alike, but this current one reminds me of something we've been through before. Both in the mid-1980s and the mid-1990s, we experienced markets just like this. And they were extremely intimidating to traders because of the incredible amount of power behind some what we call breakout moves. Remember, we didn't get to Dow 2400 by slogging slowly through the wilderness. Sometimes, like we've seen recently, we soared through the air. Take the forward pass of the stock of Caterpillar. For a month and a half, Cat hung in the 130s after a massive upside surprise. So the smart trip was to sell it at the top of the range, then try to buy it back as it got hit to the bottom, all the while thinking the stock would have to retrace at least half of that magnificent move higher from its dynamite quarter. That was the old way of thinking. Next thing you know, Cat's in the 140s, blasting out of the range off some analyst chatter and a couple good monthly numbers, and that's it. Stock bursts out from the line, and then it makes the previous range look like history. We've seen this pattern many times in the last few months, and it creates a surreal pattern for traders. They can't get over the idea that Norfolk Southern stock has rallied so much, or Home Depot's or Union Pacifics. They get what they can't understand the handle, the price right where right at the front of it. So, like they're looking at 120, and they can't believe it's suddenly going to 140. And they don't like it. It's hard to comprehend. Uh, that Boeing's the best example. I mean, it just seems to lift every single day. Sometimes by one or two points, even before the opening bell, and people just said, "I, I sold it at 270. I sold it at 280." Yeah, it's 290. Now, to understand moves like this, all we have to do is study history. And I can tell you that history is actually on the side of the bulls. Take the 1980s. Back then, stocks like Coca-Cola, Merck, PepsiCo, and Bristol-Myers were forever blowing through these ranges. It was almost eerie that these stocks could put on so much heft. I remember Business Week covered the question how Coca-Cola could have a bigger market cap than General Motors. Ha ha. No one could believe that these soft goods stocks could surge past the top of their trading ranges, levels that had been so entrenched for so long. Yet they kept roaring higher while the industrials languished. These guys didn't bend metal. They didn't make machines. They simply produced sugar, water, and pills. Well, we saw how that came out. Industrial America passed the torch to the soft goods for good. It would never be the same afterwards. Never. We saw something similar in the 1990s, when it was hard to believe how tech exploded, first through the PC and then through the Internet. Microsoft and Intel tore through price targets like a knife through cream cheese. I'd say butter, but butter's too viscous. Analysts would be forced to raise their goals furiously just to keep up with the stocks. It's like that again. Except for this time, it's companies like Boeing, it's Caterpillar, it's Deere, Dollar Tree, United Technologies, and the banks. Now, I know that many analysts who are new to the business might question my rigor in calling up these leaps. 
Many traders would argue it's not natural for Dollar Tree to have such an insane move. They question the sanity of someone buying dear after a 50-point run. They'd, mu- they'd puzzle over how J.P. Morgan could break out above 100 or how American Special Bank of America could soon vault through 130, respectively. You'd think that the traders would have figured it out by now. This is no ordinary market, people. But they keep thinking such limited terms. The same way their predecessors watch haplessly and helplessly as Coke and Merck captivated buyers in the 80s or Cisco and Qualcomm did in the 90s. They've been conditioned to believe that these kinds of breakouts are meant to be bet against. It's this sort of what I'm now calling range skepticism that keeps so many traders on the sidelines or making, every, making them short every rip. That had been such a great strategy. And now shorting the rips is a terrible mistake. Our confusion about all this, of course, is made deeper because of all the hedge fund managers, letters and pronouncements we've had to endure where these luminaries told us that the market was headed south. Well, we look at these uh, things that they file every month. and It's like, wow, they sold this. They sold that. So many smart people were flat out fooled. Yet we kept taking their Jeremiah seriously. I say get used to the breakouts. They are to use a despicable term that hedge fund managers like to toss around the new normal. Stick with Kramer. Two of my absolute favorite stocks reported great numbers today. Carnival Cruise and Darden. Darden, of course, is Olive Garden. Carnival Cruise, the big ship company. And you know what? People are still going on cruises because it's experiential. That's where they take their pictures and they rebrand. And Darden Olive Garden represents one of the greatest bargains known to man. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you. Radio made money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.